Section 24 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 24. A Family Affair, Part 2. The broad avenue, with its two rows of gas lamps that extended as far as the Arc de Triomphe, was deserted and silent, but there was the distant roar of Paris, which seemed to have a reddish vapor hanging over it. It was a kind of continual rumbling, which was at times answered by the whistle of a train in the distance, traveling at full speed to the ocean through the provinces. The fresh air on the faces of the two men rather overcame them at first, made the doctor lose his equilibrium a little, and increased Caravan's giddiness, from which he had suffered since dinner. He walked as if he were in a dream, his thoughts were paralyzed, although he felt no great grief, for he was in a state of mental torpor that prevented him from suffering, and he even felt a sense of relief which was increased by the mildness of the night. When they reached the bridge, they turned to the right and got a fresh breeze from the river, which rolled along, calm and melancholy, bordered by tall poplar trees, while the stars looked as if they were floating on the water and were moving with the current. A slight white mist that floated over the opposite banks filled their lungs with a sensation of cold, and Caravan stopped suddenly, for he was struck by that smell from the water which brought back old memories to his mind. For, in his mind, he suddenly saw his mother again in Picardy, as he had seen her years before, kneeling in front of their door and washing the heaps of linen at her side in the stream that ran through their garden. He almost fancied that he could hear the sound of the wooden paddle with which she beat the linen in the calm silence of the country, and her voice, as she called out to him, "'Alfred, bring me some soap,' and he smelled that odor of running water, of the mist rising from the wet ground, that marshy smell which he should never forget, and which came back to him on this very evening on which his mother had died. He stopped, seized with a feeling of despair, a sudden flash seemed to reveal to him the extent of his calamity, and that breath from the river plunged him into an abyss of hopeless grief. His life seemed cut in half, his youth disappeared, swallowed up by that death. All the former days were over and done with, all the recollections of his youth had been swept away. For the future there would be nobody to talk to him of what had happened in days gone by, of the people he had known of old, of his own part of the country, and of his past life. That was a part of his existence which existed no longer, and the rest might as well end now." And then he saw the mother, as she was when young, wearing well-worn dresses, which she remembered for such a long time, that they seemed inseparable from her. He recollected her movements, the different tones of her voice, her habits, her predilections, her fits of anger, the wrinkles on her face, the movements of her thin fingers, and all her well-known attitudes, which she would never have again. And clutching hold of the doctor, he began to moan and weep. His thin legs began to tremble, his whole stout body was shaken by his sobs, and all he could say was, my mother, my poor mother, my poor mother. But his companion, who was drunk and who intended to finish the evening in certain places of bad repute that he frequented secretly, made him sit down on the grass by the riverside and left him almost immediately, under the pretext that he had to see a patient. Caravan went on crying for some time, and when he had got to the end of his tears, when his grief had, so to say, run out, he again felt relief, repose, and sudden tranquility. The moon had risen and bathed the horizon in its soft light. The tall poplar trees had a silvery sheen on them, and the mist on the plain looked like drifting snow. The river, in which the stars were reflected, which had a sheen as of mother of pearl, was gently rippled by the wind. The air was soft and sweet, and Caravan inhaled it almost greedily, and thought he could perceive a feeling of freshness, of calm and of superhuman consolation pervading him. He actually resisted that feeling of comfort and relief, and kept on saying to himself, "'My poor mother! My poor mother!' and tried to make himself cry from a kind of conscientious feeling, but he could not succeed in doing so any longer, and those sad thoughts which had made him sob so bitterly a short time before had almost passed away. 
In a few moments he rose to go home, and returned slowly, under the influence of that serene night, and with a heart soothed in spite of himself. When he reached the bridge, he saw that the last tram car was ready to start, and behind it were the brightly lighted windows of the Café du Globe. He felt a longing to tell somebody of his loss, to excite pity, to make himself interesting. He put on a woeful face, pushed open the door, and went up to the counter, where the landlord still was. He had counted on creating a sensation, and hoped that everybody would get up and come to him with outstretched hands, and say, "'Why, what is the matter with you?' But nobody noticed his disconsolate face, so he rested his two elbows on the counter, and burying his face in his hands, he murmured, "'Mon Dieu! Mon Dieu!' The landlord looked at him and said, "'Are you ill, Monsieur Caravan?' "'No, my friend,' he replied, "'but my mother has just died.' Ah, the other exclaimed, and as a customer at the other end of the establishment asked for a glass of Bavarian beer, he went to attend to him, leaving Caravan dumbfounded at his want of sympathy. The three domino players were sitting at the same table which they had occupied before dinner, totally absorbed in their game, and Caravan went up to them in search of pity, but as none of them appeared to notice him, he made up his mind to speak. A great misfortune has happened to me since I was here, he said. All three slightly raised their heads at the same instant, but keeping their eyes fixed on the pieces which they held in their hands. "'What do you say?' "'My mother has just died,' whereupon one of them said, "'Oh, the devil!' with that false air of sorrow which indifferent people assume. Another, who could not find anything to say, emitted a sort of sympathetic whistle, shaking his head at the same time, and the third turned to the game again, as if he were saying to himself, "'Is that all?' Caravan had expected some of these expressions that are said to come from the heart, and when he saw how his news was received, he left the table, indignant at their calmness, at their friend's sorrow, although this sorrow had stupefied him so that he scarcely felt it any longer. When he got home, his wife was waiting for him in her nightgown, and sitting in a low chair by the open window, still thinking of the inheritance. "'Undress yourself,' she said. "'We can go on talking.' He raised his head, and looking at the ceiling, said, "'But there is nobody upstairs.' I beg your pardon, Rosalie is with her, and you can go and take her place at three o'clock in the morning when you have had some sleep. He only partially undressed, however, so as to be ready for anything that might happen, and after tying a silk handkerchief round his head, he lay down to rest, and for some time neither of them spoke. Madame Caravan was thinking. Her nightcap was adorned with a red bow, and was pushed rather to one side, as was the way with all the caps she wore, and presently she turned towards him and said, Do you know whether your mother made a will? He hesitated for a moment and then replied, I, I do not think so. No, I'm sure she didn't. His wife looked at him and she said in a low, angry tone, I call that infamous. Here we have been wearing ourselves out for ten years looking after her and have boarded and lodged her. Your sister would not have done so much for her, nor I either, if I had known how I was to be rewarded. Yes, it is a disgrace to her memory. I dare say that you will tell me that she paid us. But one cannot pay one's children in ready money for what they do. That obligation is recognized after death. At any rate, that's how honorable people act. So I have had all my worry and trouble for nothing. Oh, that is nice. That is very nice. Poor Caravan, who was almost distracted, kept on repeating, My dear, my dear, please, please be quiet. She grew calmer by degrees, and resuming her usual voice and manner, she continued, We must let your sister know tomorrow. He started and said, of course we must. I had forgotten all about it. I will send her a telegram the first thing in the morning. No, she replied, like a woman who had foreseen everything. No, do not send it before ten or eleven o'clock, so that we may have time to turn round before she comes. It does not take more than two hours to get here from Sheraton, and we can say that you lost your head from grief. 
If we let her know in the course of the day, that will be soon enough, and will give us time to look round. Caravan put his hand to his forehead, and, in the same timid voice in which he always spoke of his chief, the very thought of whom made him tremble, he said, I must let them know at the office. Why? she replied. On occasions like this it is always excusable to forget. Take my advice and don't let him know. Your chief will not be able to say anything to you, and you will put him in a nice fix. Oh, yes, that I shall, and he will be in a terrible rage, too, when he notices my absence. Yes, you are right. It is a capital idea, and when I tell him that my mother is dead, he will be obliged to hold his tongue. And he rubbed his hands in delight at the joke when he thought of the chief's face, while upstairs lay the body of the dead old woman with the servant asleep beside it. But Madame Caravan grew thoughtful, as if she were preoccupied by something which she did not care to mention, and at last she said, "'Your mother had given you her clock, had she not? The girl playing at cup and ball?' He thought for a moment and then replied, "'Yes, yes, she said to me, but it was a long time ago when she first came here, I shall leave the clock to you if you look after me well.' Madame Caravan was reassured and regained her serenity and said, "'Well, then, you must go and fetch it out of her room, "'for if we get your sister here, she will prevent us from taking it.' "'He hesitated. "'Do you think so?' "'That made her angry. "'I certainly think so. "'Once it is in our possession, "'she will know nothing at all about where it came from. "'It belongs to us. "'It is just the same with the chest of drawers "'with the marble top that is in her room. "'She gave it to me one day when she was in good temper. "'We will bring it down at the same time.' "'Caravan, however, seemed incredulous and said, "'But, my dear, it is a great responsibility.' She turned on him furiously. Oh, indeed, will you never change? You would let your children die of hunger rather than make a move. Does that chest of drawers not belong to us as she gave it to me? And if your sister is not satisfied, let her tell me so. Me. I don't care a straw for your sister. Come, get up, and we will bring down what your mother gave us immediately. Trembling and vanquished, he got out of bed and began to put on his trousers, but she stopped him. It is not worthwhile to dress yourself. Your underwear is quite enough. I mean to go as I am. They both left the room in their night clothes, went upstairs quite noiselessly, opened the door and went into the room, where the four lighted tapers and the plate with the sprig of box alone seemed to be watching the old woman in her rigid repose, for Rosalie, who was lying back in the easy chair with her legs stretched out, her hands folded on her lap, and her head on one side, was also quite motionless, and was snoring with her mouth wide open. Caravan took the clock, which was one of those grotesque objects that were produced so plentifully under the empire. A girl in gilt bronze was holding a cup and ball, and the ball formed the pendulum. "'Give that to me,' his wife said, "'and take the marble slab off the chest of drawers.' He put the marble slab on his shoulder with considerable effort, and they left the room. Caravan had to stoop in the doorway and trembled as he went downstairs, while his wife walked backwards so as to light him, and held the candlestick in one hand, carrying the clock under the other arm. When they were in their own room, she heaved a sigh. "'We have got over the worst part of the job,' she said." So now let us go and fetch the other things. But the bureau drawers were full of the old woman's wearing apparel, which they must manage to hide somewhere, and Madame Caravan soon thought of a plan. Go and get that wooden packing case in the vestibule. It is hardly worth anything, and we may just as well put it here. And when he had brought it upstairs, they began to fill it. One by one, they took out all the collars, cuffs, chemises, caps, all the well-worn things that had belonged to the poor woman lying there behind them, and arranged them methodically in the wooden box in such a manner as to deceive Madame Bro, the deceased woman's other child, who would be coming the next day. When they had finished, they first of all carried the bureau drawers downstairs, and the remaining portion afterwards, each of them holding an end, and it was some time before they could make up their minds where it would stand best, but at last they decided upon their own room, opposite the bed, between the two windows, 
and as soon as it was in its place, Madame Caravan filled it with her own things. The clock was placed on the chimney piece in the dining room, and they looked to see what the effect was, and were both delighted with it, and agreed that nothing could be better. Then they retired, she blew out the candle, and soon everybody in the house was asleep. It was broad daylight when Caravan opened his eyes again. His mind was rather confused when he woke up, and he did not clearly remember what had happened for a few minutes. When he did, he felt a weight at his heart, and jumped out of bed almost ready to cry again. He hastened to the room overhead where Rosalie was still sleeping in the same position as the night before, not having awakened once. He sent her to do her work, put fresh tapers in the place of those that had burned out, and he looked at his mother, revolving in his brain those apparently profound thoughts, those religious and philosophical commonplaces which trouble people of mediocre intelligence in the presence of death. But as his wife was calling him, he went downstairs. She had written a list of what had to be done during the morning, and he was horrified when he saw her memorandum. 1. Report the death at the mayor's office. 2. See the doctor who had attended her. 3. Order the coffin. 4. Give notice at the church. 5. Go to the undertaker. 6. Order the notices of her death at the printers. 7. Go to the lawyer. 8. Telegraph the news to all the family. Besides all this, there were a number of small commissions, so he took his hat and went out. As the news had spread abroad, Madame Caravan's female friends and neighbors soon began to come in and beg to be allowed to see the body. There had been a scene between husband and wife at the hairdressers on the ground floor about the matter, while a customer was being shaved. The wife, who was knitting steadily, said, "'Well, there is one less, and as great a miser as one ever meets with. I certainly did not care for her, but nevertheless I must go and have a look at her.' The husband, while lathering his patient's chin, said, "'That is another queer fancy. Nobody but a woman would think of such a thing. It is not enough for them to worry you during life, but they cannot even leave you at peace when you are dead.' But his wife, without being in the least disconcerted, replied, The feeling is stronger than I am, and I must go. It has been on me since the morning. If I were not to see her, I should think about it all my life. But when I have had a good look at her, I shall be satisfied. The knight of the razor shrugged his shoulders and remarked in a low voice to the gentleman whose cheek he was scraping, I just ask you, what sort of ideas do you think these confounded females have? I should not amuse myself by going to see a corpse. But his wife had heard him and replied very quietly, but it is so, it is so. And then, putting her knitting on the counter, she went upstairs to the first floor, where she met two other neighbors who had just come, and who were discussing the event with Madame Caravan, who was giving them the details, and they all went together to the death chamber. The four women went in softly, and one after the other sprinkled the bedclothes with the salt water, knelt down, made the sign of the cross while they mumbled a prayer. Then they rose from their knees and looked for some time at the corpse, with round, wide-open eyes and mouths partly open while the daughter-in-law of the dead woman, with her handkerchief to her face, pretended to be sobbing piteously. When she turned about to walk away, whom she could perceive was standing close to the door but Marie-Louise and Philippe Auguste, who were curiously taking stock of what wall was going on. Then, forgetting her pretended grief, she threw herself upon them with uplifted hands, crying out in a furious voice, "'Will you get out of this, you horrid brats?' Ten minutes later, going upstairs again with another contingent of neighbors, she prayed, wept profusely, performed all her duties, and found once more her two children, who had followed her upstairs. She again boxed their ears soundly, but the next time she paid no heed to them, and at each fresh arrival of visitors, the two urchins always followed in the wake, kneeling down in a corner and imitating everything they saw their mother do. When the afternoon came, the crowds of inquisitive people began to diminish, and soon there were no more visitors. Madame Caravan, returning to her own apartments, began to make the necessary preparations for the funeral ceremony, and the deceased was left alone. 
The window of the room was open. A torrid heat entered, along with clouds of dust. The flames of the four candles were flickering beside the immobile corpse, and upon the cloth which covered the face, the closed eyes, the two stretched-out hands, small flies alighted, came, went, and careered up and down incessantly, being the only companions of the old woman for the time being. Marie-Louise and Philippe Auguste, however, had now left the house and were running up and down the street. They were soon surrounded by their playmates, by little girls especially, who were older and who were much more interested in all the mysteries of life, asking questions as if they were grown people. "'Then your grandmother is dead?' "'Yes, she died yesterday evening.' "'What does a dead person look like?' Then Marie began to explain, telling all about the candles, the sprig of box, and the face of the corpse. It was not long before great curiosity was aroused in the minds of all the children, and they asked to be allowed to go upstairs to look at the departed. Marie-Louise at once organized a first expedition, consisting of five girls and two boys, the biggest and most courageous. She made them take off their shoes so that they might not be discovered. The troop filed into the house and mounted the stairs as stealthily as an army of mice. Once in the chamber, the little girl, imitating her mother, regulated the ceremony. She solemnly walked in advance of her comrades, went down on her knees, made the sign of the cross, moved her lips as in prayer, rose, sprinkled the bed, and while the children, all crowded together, were approaching, frightened and curious, and eager to look at the face and hands of the deceased, she began suddenly to simulate sobbing and to bury her eyes in her little handkerchief. Then, becoming instantly consoled, on thinking of the other children who were downstairs waiting at the door, she ran downstairs followed by the rest, returning in a minute with another group, then a third, for all the little ragamuffins of the countryside, even to the little beggars in rags, had congregated in order to participate in this new pleasure, and each time she repeated her mother's grimaces with absolute perfection. At length, however, she became tired. Some game or other drew the children away from the house, and the old grandmother was left alone, forgotten suddenly by everybody. The room was growing dark, and upon the dry and rigid features of the corpse the fitful flames of the candles cast patches of light. Towards eight o'clock Caravan ascended to the chamber of death, closed the windows, and renewed the candles. He was now quite composed on entering the room, accustomed already to regard the corpse as though it had been there for months. He even went the length of declaring that, as yet, there were no signs of decomposition, making this remark just at the moment when he and his wife were about to sit down at the table. Pshaw, she responded. She is now stark and stiff. She will keep for a year. The soup was eaten in silence. The children, who had been left to themselves all day, now worn out by fatigue, were sleeping soundly on their chairs, and nobody ventured to break the silence. Suddenly the flame of the lamp went down. Madame Caravan immediately turned up the wick. A hollow sound ensued, and the light went out. They had forgotten to buy oil. To send for it now to the grocers would keep back the dinner, and they began to look for candles, but none were to be found except the tapers which had been placed upon the table upstairs, in the death chamber. Madame Caravan, always prompt in her decisions, quickly dispatched Marie-Louise to fetch two, and her return was awaited in total darkness. The footsteps of the girl who had ascended the stairs were distinctly heard. There was silence for a few seconds, and then the child descended precipitately. She threw open the door, and in a choking voice murmured, "'Oh, Papa, Grandmama is dressing herself!' Caravan bounded to his feet with such precipitance that his chair fell over against the wall. He stammered out, "'You say? What are you saying?' But Marie-Louise, gasping with emotion, repeated, "'Grand! Grand! Grandmama is putting on her clothes! She's coming downstairs!' Caravan rushed boldly up the staircase, followed by his wife, dumbfounded, but he came to a standstill before the door of the second floor, overcome with terror, not daring to enter. What was he going to see?' Madame Caravan, more courageous, turned the handle of the door and stepped forward into the room. 
The old woman was standing up, and awakening from her lethargic sleep before even regaining full consciousness, and turning upon her side and raising herself on her elbow, she had extinguished three of the candles which burned near the bed. Then, gaining strength, she got off the bed and began to look for her clothes. The absence of her chest of drawers had at first worried her, but after a little she had succeeded in finding her things at the bottom of the wooden box, and was now quietly dressing. She emptied the plate full of water, replaced the sprig of box behind the looking-glass, and arranged the chairs in their places, and was ready to go downstairs when there appeared before her her son and daughter-in-law. Caravan rushed forward, seized her by the hands, embraced her with tears in his eyes, while his wife, who was behind him, repeated in a hypocritical tone of voice, "'Oh, what a blessing! Oh, what a blessing!' But the old woman, without being at all moved, without even appearing to understand, rigid as a statue, and with glazed eyes, simply asked, "'Will dinner soon be ready?' He stammered out, not knowing what he said. "'Oh, yes, mother, we've been waiting for you.' And with an alacrity unusual in him, he took her arm, while Madame Caravan, the younger, seized the candle and lighted them downstairs, walking backwards in front of them, step by step, just as she had done the previous night for her husband who was carrying the marble. On reaching the first floor, she almost ran against people who were ascending the stairs. It was the Sherrington family, Madame Bro, followed by her husband. The wife, tall and stout, with a prominent stomach, opened wide her terrified eyes and was ready to make her escape. The husband, a socialist shoemaker, a hairy little man, the perfect image of a monkey, murmured quite unconcerned, "'Well, what next? Is she resurrected?' As soon as Madame Caravan recognized them, she made frantic gestures to them. Then, speaking aloud, she said, "'Why, here you are! What a pleasant surprise!' But Madame Bro, dumbfounded, understood nothing. She responded in a low voice, "'It was your telegram that brought us. We thought that all was over.' Her husband, who was behind her, pinched her to make her keep silent. He added with a sly laugh, which his thick beard concealed, "'It was very kind of you to invite us here. We set out post-haste.' which remark showed the hostility which had for a long time reigned between the households. Then, just as the old woman reached the last steps, he pushed forward quickly and rubbed his hairy face against her cheeks, shouting in her ear on account of her deafness, "'How well you look, mother! Sturdy as usual, hey?' Madame Bro, in her stupefaction at seeing the old woman alive, whom they all believed to be dead, dared not even embrace her, and her enormous bulk blocked up the passageway and hindered the others from advancing." The old woman, uneasy and suspicious, but without speaking, looked at everyone around her, and her little gray eyes, piercing and hard, fixed themselves now on one and now on the other, and they were so full of meaning that the children became quite frightened. Caravan, to explain matters, said, "'She has been somewhat ill, but she's better now. Quite well indeed, are you not, mother?' Then the good woman, continuing to walk, replied in a husky voice, as though it came from a distance, "'It was syncope. I heard you all the while.' An embarrassing silence followed. They entered the dining room, and in a few minutes all sat down to an improvised dinner. Only Monsieur Bro had retained his self-possession. His gorilla features grinned wickedly, while he let fall some words of double meaning which painfully disconcerted everyone. But the doorbell kept ringing every second, and Rosalie, distracted, came to call Caravan, who rushed out, throwing down his napkin. His brother-in-law even asked him whether it was not one of his reception days, to which he stammered out an answer— no, only a few packages, nothing more. A parcel was brought in, which he began to open carelessly, and the morning announcements with black borders appeared unexpectedly. Reddening up to the very eyes, he closed the package hurriedly and pushed it under his waistcoat. His mother had not seen it. She was looking intently at her clock, which stood on the mantelpiece, and the embarrassment increased in the midst of a dead silence. Turning her wrinkled face towards her daughter, the old woman, in whose eyes gleamed malice, said, 
On Monday you must take me away from here so that I can see your little girl. I want so much to see her. Madame Bro, her features all beaming, exclaimed, Yes, mother, that I will, while Madame Caravan the younger, who had turned pale, was ready to faint with annoyance. The two men, however, gradually drifted into conversation and soon became embroiled in a political discussion. Bro maintained the most revolutionary and communistic doctrines, his eyes glowing and gesticulating and throwing about his arms. Property, sir, he said, is a robbery perpetuated on the working classes. The land is the common property of every man. Hereditary rights are an infamy and a disgrace. But here he suddenly stopped, looking as if he had just said something foolish, and then added in softer tones, but this is not the proper moment to discuss such things. The door was opened and Dr. Chenet appeared. For a moment he seemed bewildered, but regaining his usual smirking expression of countenance, he jauntily approached the old woman and said, "'Aha, Mama, you are better today. Oh, I never had any doubt that you would come round again. In fact, I said to myself as I was mounting the staircase, I have an idea that I shall find the old lady on her feet once more, and as he patted her gently on the back, "'Ah, she is solid as the Pont Neuf. She will bury us all, see if she doesn't.' He sat down, accepted the coffee that was offered him, and soon began to join in the conversation of the two men, backing up Bro, for he himself had been mixed up in the commune. The old woman, now feeling herself fatigued, wished to retire. Caravan rushed forward. She looked him steadily in the eye and said, "'You, you must carry my clock in the chest of drawers upstairs again without a moment's delay.' "'Yes, Mama," he replied. "'Yes, I will do so.' The old woman then took the arm of her daughter and withdrew from the room. The two caravans remained astounded, silent, plunged in the deepest despair, while Bro rubbed his hands and sipped his coffee gleefully. Suddenly, Madame Caravan, consumed with rage, rushed at him, exclaiming, "'You are a thief, a footpad, a cur. I would spit in your face. I—I—I would—' She could find nothing further to say, suffocating as she was with rage, while he went on sipping his coffee with a smile. His wife returning just then, Madame Caravan attacked her sister-in-law, and the two women, the one with her enormous bulk, the other epileptic and spare, with changed voices and trembling hands, flew at one another with words of abuse. Chenet and Bro now interposed, and the latter, taking his better half by the shoulders, pushed her out of the door before him, shouting, "'Go on, you slut, you talk too much,' and the two were heard in the street quarreling until they disappeared from sight. Monsieur Chenet also took his departure, leaving the caravans alone, face to face." The husband fell back on his chair, and with the cold sweat standing out in beads on his temples, murmured, What shall I say to my chief tomorrow? End of section 24. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.